0: Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Steve Wallen. As Paul said, I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church. But as many of you know, not for very much longer. And so um, this is my last message. I get to preach to our church as one of your pastors. And uh, if I think about that too much, I'm going to get a little verklempt. So I'm not going to try to do that. But as uh, we were worshiping this morning, that last song just really, it really came over me. It's like, it's its really here. It's really coming. But um, I thought an awful lot about what I wanted to talk about today because it is the last time that I'll get to have any kind of authority over you, right? I might be back to teach again, but it's the last time that I'm one of your pastors. And so what was the one message I really wanted to send to our church? That's what I asked myself over the past few weeks as we were planning this series. And I thought, do I want to talk about disciple making and how you should go and share your faith with your neighbors? That's really important right? We believe in disciple-making. We're a disciple-making church here at Genesis. But I thought, you know what? That's too focused on works. I don't want to do that. Let's, let's talk about something else. And so then I thought about maybe talking about the importance of following Jesus and what a difference it can make in your life and how it's made a difference in my life. It is without a doubt the single best decision I've ever made in my life. You know, I spent more than probably half of my life now uh, not following Jesus but the second half has been much better. And so I wanted to tell people that, but then I thought, you know what? We're doing Old Testament stories. I got to come up with something from the Old Testament and maybe that's not quite it anyway. And as I started thinking about the Old Testament, there was this one verse, this one passage that I read earlier this year, it really stuck out to me. And I thought, that's it. That's the passage I need to share with our church. And we'll get to that, I promise. But I'm not going to tell you what it is now because first... We're in this series called Sticky Stories, as Paul said. We've been uh, doing these stories from the Old Testament. They're stories you probably heard as a kid, but the lessons kind of last with you throughout your adult life. And um, we're handing out these stickers. And I know many of you didn't get this one. So this is now a treasured uh, uh, collector's item. Uh, because we ran out, and we had a great, service, a great crowd first service, so I apologize if you didn't get one of those. If we have any extras left after next week, we'll try to get some over here. Um, but the story, you might be able to tell, some people guessed it from the sticker, is the story of Rachel. And uh, Rachel's story is found in Genesis chapter 29, and so if you've got your Bibles, you've got a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 29. Now, Rachel's story is often thought of as Jacob's story. And that makes sense because Jacob was one of the fathers of Israel. Well, he was was the father. He was Israel. I mean, Jacob changed his name in his life, or some people would say the Lord changed his name, um, to Israel. He was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, it's probably a good thing that he changed his name later in his life because his initial name, Jacob, the name means deceiver. And so, parents, if you're thinking about naming your kids something, you know, you want to name something that's going to match their personality, don't name them deceiver, okay? Um, but the name Jacob literally means heal, because, and he was named that because when he was, uh, when his mom, Rebecca, was pregnant, there were twins and Esau was born the older child, but when he was born, the story is told in the Old Testament that Jacob had his hand grasping at the heel of Esau like he was trying to pull him back into the womb so that Jacob could be the firstborn. And, and there's a, an idiom in Hebrew that means to grab, that says to grab one's heel and it means to deceive. And so that name literally means deceiver. And we, there's still a remnant of that left in the English language actually. Did you know that? There's a remnant of this idea of heel grabber. And when you say that somebody has been pulling your leg, right, what are they doing? They're tricking you, right, they're deceiving you. So uh, Jacob is literally the leg puller, he's the deceiver. So it's good that he changed his name. His name got changed to Israel. We see deception often in Jacob's life. We see it when he tricks his brother Esau into giving away his birthright. Uh, The older son in ancient Israel was due twice the inheritance of all the younger children and Jacob deceived Esau into giving away his birthright. We see it when Jacob tricks his father, Isaac, into giving Jacob his blessing instead of Esau. But Jacob can't take full responsibility for his own deception, because in reality, Isaac was a deceiver too. His dad, Isaac, uh, at one point in his life, told some people that his wife was actually his sister, so that he would avoid physical harm. But we can't blame Isaac for that either because his father, Abraham, did the very same thing with his wife, Sarah. So we see generation after generation after generation of deception in Jacob's life, which brings to me the question, why does God often use such sinful people to carry out his purposes? And the answer I came up with this week is that we are all he has, is sinful people. We're all he has. And so after Jacob is blessed by his father, um, Isaac tells him to go off to Padan Aram, which is where his mother, Rebecca, is from, to go try to find one of his mother's relatives and find himself a wife. And this is where Rachel enters the picture. So if you've got your Bible open or your Bible app open, let's go there. Genesis 29, we're going to start in verse 2. They'll also be on the side screens here. It says, there he, Jacob, J- there he saw a well in the open country, with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, "'My brothers, where are you from?' "'We're from Haran,' they replied. "'He said to them, "'Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson?' "'Yes, we know him,' they answered. "'Then Jacob asked him, "'Is he well?' Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. And so Laban would have been uh, Jacob's mother's brother, somehow related, okay? We don't know exactly the relationship, Um, but he's looking for this man, Laban, and here comes his daughter, Rachel. Rachel enters the picture, Jacob sees her, and then this happens, verse seven. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. In other words, here comes Rachel. Get out of here. Shepherds, go. Skip. So we can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. So these shepherd boys, they're waiting to water their sheep, but they couldn't roll the stone away. They're, they're, They're too weak. They can't roll the stone away until more of the shepherds get there to help them take this stone off the top of the well. Now, the stone's there to keep stuff from falling in the well. That's really important, right? You don't want dead animals, dead birds, live birds, live animals falling in the well where you drink your water from. So it's got this giant stone covering the well. Um, But Jacob wants to send them away, presumably so he can get some quiet time with Rachel. Verse 9, while he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, uh, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. So let's just unpack this scene for a minute so we understand what's going on here. Jacob is trying to get the shepherd boys to leave. They won't leave because they need to water their sheep. So Jacob rolls the stone away by himself so that Rachel can water her sheep. Now this shows his kindness, right? But it also shows his strength a little bit. He's kind of showing off for her. Um, He's got muscles enough that he can move this stone away by himself. And then he goes over and kisses her, which seems a little forward. It must've been quite a surprise to Rachel to be kissed by a relative, but I wonder if it didn't make her mind flash back to this story she had heard about her Aunt Rebecca Jacob's mother who met her husband at a well and married into a wealthy family and then moved away to this exotic foreign land where she was living um, with a big family in this wealthy environment. And she may have started having the same dreams about the Barbie dream house, right? And the pink Corvette and all the things that come with that in this foreign land. She's apparently so excited by this prospect that she runs to tell her father. So verse 13 says, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Now we're told that Jacob stayed with Laban for a month. I'm hoping that he was invited, that he wasn't an unwanted house guest. He didn't just say, hey, I'm just gonna crash here for a while if it's cool with you. Um, That he's not just hanging, he's probably hanging out hoping to get a glimpse of Rachel. But after a while, Laban makes this offer to him. We see it in verse 15. Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now on the surface, this seems like a generous offer from Laban. Like I'm gonna pay you, you tell me what you need to get paid. But really it's more of a, hey, if you're gonna stay here, I'm gonna need you to help out. All right, so I'm gonna treat you like a hired servant. And so I'm gonna give you work to do and you're gonna tell me what your wages are gonna be, what I'm gonna have to pay you. And here's where the author of Genesis takes a little detour to tell us about Laban's story. This is really important to the story. Uh, Verse 16 says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, as I was looking at this passage this week, uh, Paul told me, because he went to Bible school and I didn't, Uh, he told me that what he learned in Bible school was that weak eyes actually was a Hebrew word for a good personality. And so I don't know if that's true or not. No, actually, there's no direct translation for weak eyes, but you can transliterate it where you uh, spell it, you spell out the word and it's spelled U-G-L-Y. And so um, that's Leah. Rachel's beautiful, Leah's not so beautiful. You get the picture, okay? This is what's happening here. But it gives us, really, it gives us some insight into what, a complicated and competitive relationship these two sisters must've had, right? I mean, I I grew up an oldest child and I know as the oldest, you wanna do everything better than your younger brother or sister, right? You were the first, you were the biggest, you were the strongest, you were the smartest, you learned everything first. And when your younger brother or sister does something better than you, it drives you absolutely crazy, right? Rachel, the younger sister, is objectively more attractive than Leah, and that's probably really hard on her. Let's go on. Verse 18 says, Jacob was in love with Rachel. He told Laban, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel so much, he was willing to serve Laban seven years. So we look at this kind of as a dowry, all right? Jacob is, um, he comes from a wealthy family, he comes from money, but when he came off from Israel to Padan Aram, he likely didn't bring much with him. He didn't bring wealth. He wasn't planning to stay there, certainly not for seven years. He was planning to go find a wife and bring her back home. So he probably didn't have a lot of money with him, a lot of goods with him. And so he says, what does he have? He has his labor. And so what he's doing here is he's offering much more than a normal dowry because he really wants to lock down Rachel, right? Uh, there's two things here going on here. It could be one or the other or both. That Jacob first one is Jacob wants to make Laban an offer he can't refuse to lock her down. So he's gonna make her a long, make, going to make him a long-term contract offer. I'm gonna stay here for seven years. That's what happens, okay? If you want, you want somebody not to leave, you want your star running back not to leave, what do you do? You make him a long-term contract offer. That's what Jacob is doing with Laban now. You sign him to a seven-year deal and uh, it's hard to turn down that kind of money. Jacob is putting the bag out there and telling Laban to go get it. That's what's happening. Could be. Or the second thing is this. It's possible that Rachel is not yet old enough to be married. Remember, she's working as a shepherd. Parents would often have their children serve as shepherds when they were too young to do some of the other things around the house, but they were old enough to take care of the animals. If you were at the county fair, you've been to the state fair, you see there's a lot of kids, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, even younger sometimes, taking care of the animals, it's likely that many of the shepherds were as young as 10 to 12 years old. And, I mean, remember David? David was a shepherd. All of his brothers were off to war. David was too young to go off to war. He was back taking care of the sheep. We see at this, at this story right here, this well, all these shepherds are standing around. They're too weak to move the stone away from the well. Why? Well, likely they're too young. They're, they're not old enough yet. They haven't gained their strength yet. And so it's likely that or it's possible that Jacob was waiting for Rachel to grow into a young woman before he got married. Whatever's happened, it could be either of these things, could be both. But likely when Laban heard this offer from Jacob, this incredibly generous offer, he thought, there's a sucker. Like there's a guy I can take advantage of. But regardless of why, he accepts the deal. Jacob works with him for seven years. It was a true waiting game. Uh, even though Jacob was living in Laban's house, he likely wouldn't have seen Rachel all the time. This wouldn't have been a, like a dating relationship. They weren't courting. Uh, they certainly weren't living together. There were very strict boundaries in those days, in those cultures uh, between young men and unmarried women. Uh, but the Bible makes this statement. This is really telling. In Genesis twenty nine twenty, it says, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And the romantics in the room are like, oh, isn't that sweet? And the skeptics or the ones without boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands or wives are like, oh, gross. That's so terrible. Guys, he just loves Rachel so much. He loves her so much. He worked seven years and it just seemed like a few days. Oh. But Jacob's about to get a taste of his own medicine. The deceiver is gonna be deceived. The, uh, the leg puller is gonna have his leg pulled. Jacob, is gonna be Jacob, And so verse 22 says, "'So Laban brought together all the people of the place "'and gave a feast. "'But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah "'and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her.'" Now weddings in those days would have been an all-day affair, even multi-days for for wealthy families. They could have been multi-day affairs, full of food and drink and dancing. So when evening came, Jacob is feeling good. Laban did not bring Rachel into the bedroom, the wife he'd worked seven years for, Wait, this brings up a question. As a dad, I have lots of questions about this. So it's the father's responsibility to bring the bride into the marriage bedroom? Dads, can you imagine how hard it is just to walk your daughter down the aisle at the wedding? (laughs) Like, is this really something we wanna do? But that's what he's doing. He's gonna bring his daughter, but Laban didn't bring Rachel. He didn't bring the wife that Jacob loved and worked seven years for. He brought the great personality. Now... Let me tell you why this is possible. As I mentioned, there's been lots of drinking. It's likely dark, it's evening. The bride would have worn a veil the entire time. But you know, you know, Jacob was caught off guard by this, right? This wasn't what he expected. In fact, just this week, as I was researching this story, I found this, I was so amazed to find this, actual video footage of Jacob waking up to Leah. Check this out. This is the worst. (laughs) That's ridiculous. (laughs) Verse 25 said, when morning came, (laughs) there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is it you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? I just find such great, delicious irony in this last question by Jacob. Why have you deceived me? Isn't that ironic? I mean, the deceiver, the man who's made his entire life and his entire living Based on deception is asking this question, why did you deceive me? It kind of reminds me of when politicians are running for office and they accuse each other of going negative when the commercial comes and their own negative ad runs, right? It's like, why did you deceive me? Why did you do this? Uh, Why did you bring this other person into the bedroom? And when we see this story only from Jacob's perspective, that's what we tend to focus on. You know, the deceiver got deceived. But what if we stop and look at it from Rachel's perspective? What if instead of Jacob's story, we focus on Rachel's story? Because after all, she has also been waiting seven years for her spouse. She's been waiting for a husband too. She's been longing for the dream house, for the new life and a new land, to finally stop cleaning up after the sheep. And she's deceived by her own father, and she didn't even do anything. She didn't do anything to deserve this, and now... Jacob may not have the wife he wanted, but at least he's got a wife, but Rachel gets nothing and all because she was born second. Verse 26, Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So this time Jacob doesn't have to wait seven more years to get his next wife. He just has to wait a week. Let's get this timeline right. Okay. He comes to Laban's house. He works seven years for what he thought was Rachel, but he gets Leah instead. He has to do a week, the bridal week with Leah, and then he gets Rachel. So seven years and one week, he gets Rachel. And then he has to work another seven years after that, right? That's the timeline we're working with here. So um, seven years, seven more he owes to Laban. And even though Rachel got the short end of the stick, she only had to wait a week to be the sister wife, right? So um, what Laban did was unfair. It was unfair to Jacob, for sure. I mean, we focus on that a lot. But it was extremely unfair to his daughters, I mean, think about this. Marriage is made for the intimacy of two people, one man and one woman. And Laban took that privilege away from both Rachel and Leah. I mean, there's a special intimacy that can only be shared in marriage. Look, I have friends who like to take trips with other guys, right? They do hiking excursions or rafting adventures or motorcycle trips together. And it seems like they really have fun but I like my wife. I mean, like I like being with her. I like spending time with her. And for some reason that God put in her, which I still have not figured out to this day, she kind of likes being with me too. And so when I hear about guys that go away for a week or two weeks with other guys and they have a good time, I'm like, I don't know that I can think of anything that would keep me away from my wife for that long. There's this intimacy in marriage that only exists in that relationship. It's a really tight circle and Laban denied that to both of his daughters. This seems like a good time to point this out. Uh, We see polygamy come up a lot in scripture. The rich and powerful men of Israel, and let's face it, pretty much every culture of this time commonly had multiple wives. It made sense practically as the rich could afford to support several families. It allowed them to have more offspring and to multiply to fill the land more fully. It allowed young women to be protected uh, from other predatory men but we need to know that God never endorses it. And we often see uh, multiple wives, multiple marriages causing relational conflict and complications and even curses onto future generations. It is not right in God's eyes. So just because it's in scripture, don't take the assumption that that's what God ordained. Now we don't practice polygamy in our culture today. Instead, we practice serial marriage. So when somebody Uh, get tired of the relationship, you get tired of the marriage, you're going to get a divorce and move on to the next person, then move on to the next person. And this also causes relational conflict and complications, and it still affects future generations. And I know many of you, many of you have seen the results of that. So Rachel waits one more week before she's able to take her husband, but Jacob's still stuck. Even after he gets the wife he wants, he's got to wait another seven, he's got to work another seven years. And So even though after that week, even though it's not like she dreams, she finally has her man, but the honeymoon doesn't last very long. We see in verse 30, it says this, Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Now you might read this and think, wait, I thought Jacob didn't love Leah. How is she getting pregnant? But it doesn't say that. It just says that he, his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And I think Jacob probably unwisely makes his preferences known because we see this in verse 32. It says, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Isn't that sad? You see what this deception does in this marriage, even for Leah, who was the first to get married. She's in a a no-win situation, really sad. Uh, Rachel has all the love, but Leah has all the children. in fact, Leah goes on to have four sons for Jacob, and then she stops having kids. Now, this infuriates Rachel. Rachel is the loved wife, but she can't give Jacob what he really wants, which is another son. And so um, finally, her sister is better at her than something, and it's something really, really important. And so Genesis 30 starts out like this. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Now, as if he had a choice, right? Uh, Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my servant, sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. Now, these women servants were likely indentured to the family, working off some sort of debt. There would have been male and female servants at that time. In this case, what we saw was that Laban gave a female servant to each of his two daughters when they got married. Uh, And the way that they were treated, they were treated like property. Men or women, they were treated like property. And so everything that they had belonged to the owner. And so Rachel gives her servant to Jacob to have children with. She has two boys for him. Then Leah starts getting jealous. So Leah gives her servant to Jacob and gives him two more sons. Finally, Leah becomes fertile again and has two more sons and a daughter for Jacob. So if you lost count, it can be understood. Uh, that's 11 children for Jacob while he's still in Padan Aram. The seven years has not run out yet. 11 children, which probably makes up for the deception suffered by our poor hero, Jacob. But again, what about Rachel? She had to sit here and watch as child after child is born to her husband and none of them are hers. Yes, she's loved by Jacob, but she has to wonder if she's loved by God. And some of you know what that feels like. Some of you have a story that's very similar to this, not exactly the same, but maybe you've tried for months and months or years to have a child without any success. And you wonder, why is, why is God not blessing me in this way? I just. Does he not love me? Is he even paying attention to me? Or maybe you're alone, you're still single. You always thought you'd be married by now, or at least in a committed relationship, but that doesn't seem to be going your way. Like, where is God? Does he even notice you? Others of you try tried to get your financial lives in order, but the jobs didn't work out or the emergencies keep happening. And meanwhile, you're watching your friends buy houses and take vacations and put their kids through college. And you think, when is it gonna happen for me? Like, when is the Lord gonna bless me? Maybe someone did something to you. You were violated by a family member or a friend. Your your trust was betrayed. You were abandoned. Uh, Somebody you thought was a friend let you down. Where was God when that happened? Still, other people have a health problem that just isn't getting better. Some of you have family conflicts that continue to get worse, or kids that have walked away from your family or walked away from their faith. Whatever it is, some of us have something in our lives that makes us think is God asleep at the wheel? Like, and this is where that phrase comes in. That phrase that I told you at the beginning of the message that I wanted to share with you today, the passage I wanted to share, as I thought about what's the one message I really wanna leave people with. Here it is. This is where it comes up. Genesis 30, it says this, then God remembered Rachel. Now you might read that and you think, well, that's kind of weird. Did he forget her and had to remember her? No, that's not what this means. In Scripture, when it says God remembered, it means that that's the moment that God decided to take action. When God remembers someone, he's he's ready to go intervene and help. I just want to give you a couple other examples to show you what I mean by this. When uh, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities, for their sinfulness, Scripture says, but God remembered Abraham and brought Lot, who was his nephew, safely out of the destruction. After the great flood, God told Noah, I will remember the covenant I made with you and will never again bring a flood to destroy the earth. In Exodus chapter two, when the Israelites are in slavery and they're crying out to God, Exodus 2.24 said that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that started the plan rolling for Moses to rescue the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. No, God is not a forgetful God. He can't forget. Rachel was never for one moment out of his mind. He, he knows everything. We call this omniscience. See, He knows everything. If he knows everything, how could he have forgotten her? In fact, Hebrews 4 puts it this way. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. God knows everything. So when he remembered Rachel, it wasn't that he had forgotten her or ignored her or that she had just slipped out of sight. When he remembered her, that was when he decided to intervene. That was when he knew it was time to act. Verse 22 says, "'Then God remembered Rachel. "'He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. "'She became pregnant and gave birth to a son "'and said, God has taken away my disgrace. "'She named him Joseph.'" Joseph means may he add. She named him Joseph and said, "'May the Lord add to me another son.'" And so God delivered to Rachel exactly what she had asked for. Finally, a son for Jacob. That, that child, the one that's depicted on this sticker right here that some of you didn't get, uh, was the tactile reminder of God's faithfulness and his remembering her. So is that the story? Is that the ma- message of Rachel's life, that if you endure enough pain and struggle, that you pray hard enough, ask hard enough, that God will eventually give you the earthly answers to your prayers? <laughs> no. No. No, that's not the story. An emphatic no for that. In fact, does does it mean that if you're struggling with infertility and you hold on and keep praying, he's going to give you a child? No, I can't promise that. Does it mean that the cancer is going to be cured or the relationship will be healed? No, that's not what the story is about. In fact, let me share with you the rest of Rachel's story here real quick as we get ready to wrap up. Once Joseph is born, Jacob wants to take his family back to his homeland. Laban tries to convince him to stay, but uh, he deceives him once again. Finally, Jacob leaves and Laban chases him, chases him through the desert. They finally get back to Bethel uh, where, uh, near where he's from and Rachel gets pregnant again, gives birth to a second son. She names him Ben-oni, which means son of my trouble. And then Rachel dies in childbirth. Jacob later renames him to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Rachel never got to see her children grow up. But Joseph grows up. Uh, You'll hear about this from Jerry next week. He grows up and goes on to save the nation of Israel. He becomes a hero in God's story. But Rachel doesn't get to experience that, which might make you wonder, why is God waiting so long? Why did he wait so long to act? Couldn't he have prevented a lot of Rachel's struggle just by giving her a child earlier? Well, maybe. But the fact is, this isn't Rachel's story just like it's not Jacob's story, just like it's not Laban's story or even Joseph's story. It's God's story. And every one of them is playing an important part in God's story. Today, every one of us is playing an important part in God's story. We sometimes get so focused on our part of the story That we don't see, or we can't see, or we don't care to see the bigger picture. We don't often step back to think about how our part of the story affects others, or how our part of the story affects God's whole story. Some of you know the name Corey Ten Boom. She was a Dutch watchmaker and a Christian. During the Nazi invasion of the Netherlands, where she lived, Corey and her family would help hide Jews to protect them from the Nazis from being captured and killed. And until one day, Corey and her father and her sister were all arrested for aiding the enemy and put into a brutal Nazi concentration camp. Uh, there, her father and sister both died, but Corey Ten Boom survived the war and went on to become a well-regarded author and speaker. When Corey would speak of her experience, she would often bring a tapestry uh, and she would show the audience the backside And she would talk about how jumbled and random it looked and how there were often dark threads which represent the dark seasons of our lives that seem so out of place. And that's how we see our lives. So often we see them like the back of a tapestry. And then she would turn the tapestry around to reveal the beautifully woven front side. And she would remind the audience that this is how God sees our lives and how the dark threads are necessary to make the whole thing beautiful and that one day when the time is right, God will reveal the whole thing to us. You know, so often our life looks like the back of the tapestry. It's jumbled, it's messy, it's without purpose. But when we can see it from God's perspective, every color is perfectly chosen, every stitch is expertly woven in. And for many of us, there are only a couple of times or a few times in our life where we really catch a glimpse of what God is weaving through the fabric of our lives. And in those moments, we're reminded that the weaver knows exactly what he's doing. In Rachel's case, uh, like I said, she didn't get to see her sons grow up. She fought with her sister Leah pretty much her whole life. She didn't get to grow old with her husband. And even though her son Joseph eventually saved the nation of Israel from starvation, it was Leah's son Judah, who eventually became an ancestor to the savior of the world, Jesus. Now it's pretty safe to say that Rachel's life didn't go exactly how she wanted it, but she was remembered by God. Here's what I want you to know today. Here's what I wanted to share with you. God remembers you. While you sit and wonder where he is or why he seems distant or when is he going to move? He knows you're there. He's waiting for the exact right time to intervene in your life and it probably won't look exactly like you wish it would and it probably won't happen exactly when you wish it would because his ways are not our ways, but in the end, it will be perfect. It will be a fitting piece to his story. Our God loves you. He cares for you so much. In fact, that long ago he enacted his own plan. It was a plan to restore the relationship between you and him to help you find your way back to God. And the plan was to give his one and only son, Jesus, to leave a perfect heaven, to come to a very broken earth and to be killed by people who thought they were doing the world good. But he took on the death that you and I deserve to save us from our sin, to save us from our shame. He gave up his one very real life so that you and I could have real life. Abundant life, eternal life, life with God. And not just in heaven, but on earth as well. Like our abundant life starts here, it starts today. And, you know, so often when we get in a tough situation, we'll pray to God, just like Rachel cried out to Jacob for help. Well, we'll cry out to God, asking Him to fix us, to cure us, to heal us, to deliver us. But in those situations, God really wants to give us Him. He wants to be our fix. He wants to be our cure. He wants to be our healing. His presence in every situation is what we need to pray for. I know many of you um, have something in your life, some area of your life where you wonder, is God absent? I want you to know today, whatever you're facing, whatever you're struggling with, you don't have to fear that God's absent or ignorant or powerless. He remembers you. Here's here's how I wanna close our service today. I wanna take a moment to pray together. We're gonna take a little guided prayer time here for a minute or two. Is there one thing? Is there one thing you've been wrestling with God about? Is there one area of your life where you wonder, where is he? What is he up to? What's he doing? Would you just um, bow your heads with me? And let's pray. Let's just, just offer that up to God, whatever it is in your life. Just say, God, where have you been in this situation? You don't have to hide that from him. He knows what you're thinking. You can be honest with him. Just take this moment. As as we pray together to close, I wanna pray this prayer. It's from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 64. The the prophet Isaiah prayed this. He said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. God, that's the God we know the God that knows all, that sees all, is all-powerful. Lord, give us the confidence that you are working in our situation, that you love us, that you care for us, even when we don't see it, that you are present and active in our lives. We need your spirit to guide us. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.